The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength through your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. God. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. I'm going to pray and we'll start unpacking the text. Father, we thank you for this morning that you have given us, a morning to gather as your people to hear from you. And so, Father, as I um, am behind this pulpit this morning, I pray that they would not hear me speak, but they would hear your words properly handled and, and served in a way that brings you glory and honor. 
I pray, Father, that you would open our ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts to receive. As we study this text, would you show us your salvation? Would you teach us how to respond just like Moses led the people of Israel in doxology? And would you refine us into Christ-likeness for your glory and for our good? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We are, have been in the book of Exodus since the beginning of September, for those of you who are coming from um, Sacred City, Davenport. And in the story of Exodus, the book of Exodus is an epic story of God delivering his people from the bondage of slavery and freeing them to live flourishing lives as his people. And so if you want to catch up with where we've already been, you can go ahead and go online, sacredcitychurch.com, and find our podcast or go to the iTunes store and download them. But just to get you up to speed for the purpose of this morning, I want to I want to kind of um, show you the highlights real quick. And to do that, we need to go back to the book of Genesis because um, even though the Exodus story is kind of unique and, and defined, we kind of have to go back to Genesis for some sort of framework. And it's in Genesis where we see that the Israelites have initially found favor with the Egyptian leadership and they're offered a safe haven um, in a season of economic crisis. And it's in this land of Egypt where Israel grows. They multiply, their herds get bigger, they become wealthy people, and for them, life is good until something horrific happens. A new pharaoh comes in onto the scene, and he despises Israel. He sees them as a threat. He sees them in their wealth and their number, and he starts oppressing them until they eventually become slaves. And 400 years of this kind of compounds where they're actually living as slaves under the cruel regime of Pharaoh. Each generation of, of, of Egyptian leadership hates the Israelites more and more. It's terrible conditions. In fact, when Moses kind of documents this as he's writing the book of Exodus, um, I just want to read for you um, from chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Moses says this about their treatment in, in Egypt. Therefore, they set, ta- they is, is Egypt, they set taskmasters over them, which is Israel, to afflict, uh, afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, um, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Moses says, shows us just the severity of the situation of Israel under these, this terrible leadership of, of Israel. And, and in that, even though Pharaoh was trying to make life difficult and snuff them out. He did not snuff them out. In fact, Israel multiplied under this oppression. And to the fact where Pharaoh became so threatened by Israel that he, he decided the way to remedy this was to, ha- to, to, to kind of mandate an uh, inf- infanticide where the sons of Israel, the new sons, would be thrown into the Nile River and consumed. And so it's, it's in this context where God's people are crying out in anguish. They're recoiling from the heartache of losing their newborn sons while the wounds on their back from their slave driver's lashings throb in pain. It seems as if there's no hope, that there's no way out for them. 
But in Exodus 2, 24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and he knew, he knew what needed to be done. And so God raised up a man named Moses to go to Pharaoh and to deliver his, his people. And each time Moses goes to Pharaoh and asks for God's people to be let go, to go worship God, Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder and he refuses until the final point uh, where God issues the final plague where all who do not have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts would lose their firstborn son from the poorest of the Egyptians all the way up to the house of Pharaoh. And that night, God came to town. And Exodus 12, 30 says that there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a single house where someone was not dead. With this, Pharaoh demands that Israel leave at once. So in the middle of the night, millions of Israelites pack up and left town, taking with them all that they owned, even plundering the Egyptians. The Egyptians wanted them gone so bad. Here, take our jewelry, take our life savings. And the Israelites headed out of town. And so God led the Israelites as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night to a place where he had promised their forefathers. And so it seems like it's over. They're out. They've been let go. But that's far from the case. God hardens Pharaoh's heart once again, and Pharaoh decides that he wants his slaves back. So he sends his army to chase them down. And, and at this point, Israel is terrified because they're pinned up against the Red Sea and they see Pharaoh's army coming and they're like, what, what is going on? They fear for their lives. And so for them, it seems that freedom is gone already. They just got it and now it's going back to Egypt for even more severe treatment, for even tougher situation. And so they start complaining to Moses. They, they think of their imminent fate. They tell, tell Moses, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and serve them than if it were to come out here and die. And under the heat of criticism, Moses stands up and he says to the people, Exodus 14, 13, verses 13 and 14, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. See, and then God tells Moses to take his staff and lift it up over the water, and he does so, and the water is split, creating a corridor, walls of water in the Red Sea for the Israelites to pass through. The Egyptians, they see this, and they're probably freaked out quite a bit. They see the, the corridor of water, and like, there's no way we're going in there. That looks like trouble, but Pharaoh's heart is so hard, getting to the point of the hardness of a diamond, that he says, go in there after them, seize them. And as the army goes into the corridor of water, Pharaoh raises up his staff once again, and the water consumes them. What this shows here, by, by God sending the water consume their enemies. It shows that God is capable of saving his people even in the most dire of situations. In the moments where we have no hope, even in the moments where our faith is weak and wavering, God is able to fight for us. All we need to do is to be silent and trust in his work. And by bringing the Israelites through the Red Sea, God is bringing about their salvation. Now they are free. See, now they're on the other side of the Red Sea, 
On one side of the Red Sea was, was slavery and oppression. Now on the other, other side of that Red Sea is freedom, liberation. They have evaded Pharaoh and his men, and for the first time in over 430 years, they are free. This is an epic moment for Israel. God proved his absolute power over the Egyptians and achieved salvation on their behalf. All that was required of Israel was to be still and let the Lord work. And then we see in Exodus 14.31, it's a hinge point. It's crucial to see this for the story of the Exodus. Because up to this point, we're not quite sure how Israel feels about God. They're, they're kind of hot and cold. At one moment, they're cursing Moses for coming and, and promising deliverance. And, and then their, their um, slave um, tasks become harder and harder. And so they curse Moses, like, what are you doing? And then the next moment, we see a sort of a glimmer of faith as they're painting their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. But now we kind of get some clarity. Although it's, even though we get clarity, we'll see how rocky it is moving forward in the story of Exodus. But this is an important part where they say, in verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, this was a defining moment for Israel. Now, not only are they free from slavery, but they are trusting and depending upon God. See, this is foreign to them. This idea of being free is foreign to them. All that they knew in their entire lives was slavery. But now the enemy is gone and they are free. And, and so it's confusing. Now what? What do we do? Ricky Bobby, I'm not quite sure what to do with my hands, you know? What, what do we do now? But this confusion doesn't last long. Moses starts leading his people in song. See, this is a different kind of song. All they ever knew to this point were songs of slavery, pleading for deliverance, songs similar to what, what African-American slaves would sing. Swing low, sweet chariot. Go down, Moses. Songs pleading for deliverance. But now they have a new song. It's a song of freedom, a song of exaltation, a song of liberation, a song of triumphant joy. See, the reason for this is that song is the instinctual response to redemption. Philip Ryken says, salvation is what put the song into Israel's heart. As soon as the people were safe, they burst into song, offering God an exuberant doxology. You see, whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. At creation, we see this. The morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted with joy. In the Old Testament, we see this pattern continue as God works on behalf of his people. They respond in song to God. We see it even in the New Testament, where the revelation of Christ is becoming known. People see that Christ is the one who has come to save them, and people respond in song. And we even see this carrying on into the new heavens, new earth, when Jesus comes back and brings us home for good, where we will join the heaven Heavenly beings singing, holy, holy, holy. See, song is an important part of a Christian life. So it was fitting for Israel to sing. Scholars, some scholars think that it's out of place. Well, why would, why would you put a song? It's essentially a psalm. Why would you put a psalm in the middle of a narrative? This, it doesn't contribute anything. But, but actually, when you think about it, the only thing that makes sense after Exodus 14 is for God's people to sing his praises. Because salvation always demands a response. 
See, one commentator says it like this. The song of Moses was not merely appropriate at this point. It was mandatory. The people were compelled to sing. So Moses, he wrote a song, a good song. We even sang part of it this morning in that last tune. It wasn't a wishy-washy, sort of generic kind of song that unfortunately there's, there's so much on, of on Christian radio right now. It was a theologically robust yet deeply personal song. See, Moses isn't just reciting cold facts about God. He he doesn't just have an attribute checklist that he's kind of going down. Uh, God's gracious check, yep, said that. God's holy check, yep, said that. God's loving check, said that. No, this, this is an experience of God that Moses has had. And so it comes through in song. See, this is a common mistake that we might make. See, we might know what God is like. We might even know what it takes to be saved. And we sing it and we say it. But it's detached from a personal encounter with God. Right? We might sing about God's grace, but we've never been vulnerable enough to admit that we actually need grace. We might sing of God's love, but we view God more of a cold, distant stepfather than a a loving, compassionate father who embraces us. We might sing and speak of God's forgiveness, but we still, day in, day out, carry our, our past guilt and shame with us. See, to be a Christian means not just to know about the things of God, but to experience them for yourself, to experience the grace, to experience the forgiveness, to experience love. See, salvation is meant to be experienced firsthand. And until you have felt the realness of God's love, until you have sensed the truth and the beauty of it, the severity and and the kindness of God's love deep in your soul, see, this, this is when doxology is produced. It's when your theology is experienced that doxology comes forth. Now, what is doxology? Doxology, the word itself, comes from two Greek words. The first is doxa, which means glory. And the other word is lagos, which means to say or word. And so doxology means a word of acknowledgement of God's glory. See, Moses has experienced God's glory, and he's now acknowledging it in his doxology. Philip Ryken, again, he says this, Moses not only wrote his song about God, but he is singing it to God. It is good to talk about the attributes of God, but it is even better to write them in poetic lines and set them to music and sing them back to God. Until we do this, we have not yet achieved the goal of theology, which is to worship God. See, Moses experiences theology, and it comes forth in doxology, which is pointed right back to God. He wrote a song of praise that declared the the supremacy of God in a deeply personal way, but not only for himself, but for all of Israel, for everyone. You see, you can see it in verses uh, 19 through 21 in, in our passage today where the Bible makes special point of mentioning that the involvement of women in this doxology, in this worship, because women and children had experienced the salvation of the Lord just like the men did. And so this is a song for all of Israel, for all people. And it's not just any song. It's not just something that Moses kind of threw together. It was a song that he carefully crafted, giving thought to each word. It's poetic. Each stanza had a specific flow to it. And then he set it to music. 
See, and this, this song was meant to form Israel theologically, but also to remind them of how they had experienced God in the past. So it was a song that was meant to be passed down from generation to generation, and we still sing it today. And because we sing it today, well, we sing it today because it is true. And so today we're going to wade our way through this psalm and see, first we're going to see what God has done, what he's accomplished. Second, we're going to see who God is, what he is like. And last, we're going to see what it means for the people of Israel, the implications of this. So let's go ahead, open your Bibles. Uh, We use the ESV translation. That's what's up on the screen here behind us um, because we think that it is the best word-for-word translation that is out there right now. Um, So if you want to join with us, Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. See, what Moses is saying here is that God has won. He has triumphed. He has defeated Pharaoh. He is the deliverer. That it is God and only God who is responsible for their freedom. There's no confusion about that. Even though Moses was used by God to go before Pharaoh and to do some wonders and miracles, all of this comes from God. And so their worship is directed to God. Their worship is theocentric. It is God-centered and God-directed. See, this is how salvation works, that it is all God that God is responsible for the plan and the execution of delivering his people. And so it is with those who believe in Christ for their salvation, that that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, that he is the one who accomplished salvation for all who trust in him, so that it is no glory that goes to man and all the glory goes to God. See, that's why when we worship, we don't here at Sacred City, we don't sing songs about me. We don't use the, 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 the I pronouns, me pronouns. We direct our worship toward God because it is all about him. And because it's all about God, our songs reflect that, that we praise God for what he has done through Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what the Song of Moses does. Verse three through five tells the story. The Lord is the man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and, the host, uh, and his host, he came into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. See, telling of what God has done. And then once again, Moses points out that it was God who accomplishes that in verses 6 through 10. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy in the greatness of your majesty. You overthrow your adversaries. You send them out in your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. See, not only is Moses pointing out that it was God who accomplished salvation, but it's as if God had done it with ease. He wiped out the enemy with one hand. 
You see, uh, not only do I have a, uh, a newborn baby, but I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, his name's Kuiper. And one of the best parts of being a dad is to be able to wrestle with him. I love it. And he's really wound up and stuff, and so we really get after it. But one of the things, our favorite things to do is to wrestle on the couch. And we go at it, and I'm just, like, throwing him around on the couch. And, and, and it's, you know, it's really easy. I've got a significant advantage because I'm probably about six times, well, that's generous, six times of what he weighs and, uh, and significantly stronger. And so I can essentially face, take, take his face in my palm and just whoosh, heave him across. It's easy. Like one hand behind my back, boom, he's out, right? See, this is essentially what God is doing with the Egyptians. The Egypt is currently the strongest power in the world, and they cannot stand up against God. He goes to war with them with one hand tied behind his back, and he pummels them. And then with no hands, both hands behind the back, oh, yeah, I'm going to blow on you, right? You're going to fall over. God, God blows out of his nostrils, and water piles up, and then the same thing to bring the water back down and to consume them. See, God is so powerful that he wipes, Israel, or wipes the Egyptians out almost with ease. And so Israel, seeing what God has done in his power, they look to him with reverence and awe, and they ask a series of rhetorical questions, verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? They have never seen anyone do this before. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. See, Israel... We read this, and, and it seems like they're rejoicing because their enemy has just been consumed. And they have been. That's, that is part of the reason why they rejoice. But they're not just rejoicing because their enemy has defeated. They're rejoicing because their identity as God's people is being restored to them. See, look at verse 13. You, the speaking of God, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. See, after centuries of being subject to domineering kings that dealt with them harshly, they are now under a new leadership. They're being led in God's steadfast love, and they're redeemed from such oppression, and they're guided into God's heavenly abode. This means that God's children are coming home, right? This is, this is an identity-affirming thing here, where God says that you are my children, and I'm bringing you to where I am. And there's a future sense to this, where in one sense, they've been pulled out of, of, of slavery, they've been pulled out of Egypt, but there's also a future sense because they know that there's a promised land out there, that there's a place where we actually will dwell forever. And so they say in verses 17 and 18, you will bring them in, they're speaking of themselves, you will bring us in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. See, they've already been pulled out of Egypt, but they're still in the wilderness. They're still waiting for their final destination, and they look forward to that day because they know that that land has been promised to their forefathers. And ultimately, this reason right here is why they're worshiping. It's not because their enemy has been destroyed. That's part of it. They're worshiping because they are going home. They're going home to be with Yahweh, who will reign with grace and truth forever and ever. And in, in the season of Advent, we look forward to that day, too. 
We look forward knowing that God has delivered us from our sin and he has set a place for us in the future where we will be with him forevermore. See, this is why we as Christians worship God is bringing us home. And right now, while we're here on earth, we are sojourners in between two lands. We're heading home to be with our heavenly father, to be where we belong, to be where we were designed to be. And see, this is a place where we will get to enjoy the full benefits of our salvation forever, to be near to our Heavenly Father. See, this is why the gospel is so exciting, because it doesn't just promise us that we've been delivered out of sin, but it delivers us into something far better than we could ever hope for. Friends, this is good news. This is good news that is meant to be shared. The people in our city need to hear this. Our friends, our neighbors who are lost in despair, living lives under the bondage of sin, need to hear this. They need to hear that their enemy has been defeated, that they can no longer be held down, that they've been rescued from sin and death, and our rescue and sin and death also includes a new place for us to dwell. So now there's a place for us at the table. There's a father who scoots us close to him. See, God, has, God wants us so badly that he has worked salvation out on our behalf, that all we have to do is be still and receive this good news. And even in this, in this story, we see how this good news spreads. Verses 15 and 16. Now are the chiefs of Edom, dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They've heard of what God has done. They heard of what God has done. They are still a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. See, they have heard. They have heard of what God has done. And though they don't respond in faith, it's clear to see that God's protection is over his people. They see what God has done, and and there's this hope. I would imagine that there's this inner longing that one day that they would be able to experience the same sort of liberation that the people of, of Israel have experienced. But until that day, we see God protecting Israel as they journey forward. And it makes me think of this lyric that we sing in Amazing Grace this morning. It's his grace hath brought me safe this far, and it's grace that will lead me home. It's God's grace that goes with them. The same grace that delivered them goes out with them and protects them. You see, that same grace goes with them into the wilderness. See, I I think that Moses' song here is so powerful It's full of trust. It's full of hope in God. It's full of exaltation and praise. See, for this generation of Israelites, actually, for the last, this is probably the happiest that Israel has ever been in the last 400, 500 years. It's the most joyful they'll ever be. It's a mountaintop moment. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mountaintop moment, right? You've probably experienced this at at Christian camp, probably, right? You go to summer camp, Jesus is awesome. You come home, you're just jacked up. You've got your Jesus t-shirt, you love, you love reading your Bible. You read it like six hours a day. Oh, I don't, I don't watch TV anymore. The Bible's all I need right here. That's my entertainment. All right, you listen to worship music all the time. It's great. It, it, I'm, not, I'm not mocking that. I'm just saying that's kind of, it's kind of comical how that 
transpires. Those moments are to be savored. They're to be enjoyed. Because those moments, that, those mountaintop moments, they, they produce faith in us. They, they show us that we can indeed trust God and what he's done. But here's the thing. If you experience a mountaintop moment, you'll know that it eventually comes to an end. There's a slope on the other side of the mountain, right? And it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because those mountaintop moments is part of what sustains us when we go through the valleys. In fact, you can actually see this happening in chapter 15. Before we, before we even get out of the story of Exodus, we see this happening in chapter 15 where God brings them down off of the high point of being delivered through the, the Red Sea, and now they are headed into the wilderness. It's not rainbows and daisies and unicorns from here on out. There's tough times ahead. You see, and, and if the story ended right here with the end of Moses' song, it would be inconsistent with the way that we see God working throughout the entirety of his narrative, even within our, the experience of our own lives. So what God shows us here is how he sustains us in those moments, how these, these valleys are good for us. Because God doesn't just deliver his people. He doesn't just work in salvation and immediately bring them to glory. There's a process in between. There's a time of preparation that needs to happen in order to prepare the Israelites for glory. John McKay says this. He's a commentator on this passage. He says, it is God's normal way of working. uh, Excuse me. It is God's normal way of working that entering into glory does not immediately follow salvation. Rather, There's a time of preparation to make his people ready for the inheritance that he will bestow on them. So in other words, Israel is not ready for glory yet. They're not ready to be planted on God's mountain just yet. And if they were planted right at this moment, they would not flourish there. It would be a good place to be, but they would not flourish there because there's this internal discontentment that they have. Deep within them, that needs to be rooted out through seasons of testing and trials as they grow in their trust and dependence upon God. See, though they were delivered from slavery, they still had the mindset of a slave. They were out of slavery, but still mentally thinking as slaves. Um, Modern prophet um, Snoop (laughs) D-O-double-G says it like this. You can take the boy out the hood, but you can't take the hood out the homie. Right? That's the same thing. They're out of their circumstances, but they still have this mindset of slavery. And the same thing is going on with us. We have been delivered from sin, but there's still sin within us. There's dwelling in us that needs to be worked out. See, we need, we need to be made more fit for the kingdom of God. And now notice this. I just want to make this very clear, that this this sort of process is not a prerequisite for salvation, not at all. Because if you think about the story, Israel has already been delivered through the Red Sea. They've experienced salvation. They're already free. They've been redeemed. Their redemption is past tense. And now God, as redeemed people, is showing them how to live. And so what God does is he takes his people through a series of many dangers, toils, and snares, and in doing so, he's making them more fit for their heavenly dwelling place. And this process is called sanctification. 
See, sanctification is a lifelong process. You and I will be in this continual, joyfully painful grind of sanctification until the day our time expires where Jesus comes to take us home. And I say it's joyfully painful because there are seasons of tough times, but it's in those tough times that we know that God is working for our good. But when I say that sanctification is, is kind of rooting this out, what, what essentially is happening is God is using sanctification to make us more like Jesus. And when I say that God is making us more like Jesus, most of us kind of automatically think in terms of morality. Well, he'll make me a more moral person. That's what sanctification is about, right? Uh, he'll take away my lust. He'll take away my greed. He'll take away my, my desire to gossip. Right? We think in, in terms of external behavior, and if we think just like that, we sort of reduce what sanctification actually is. See, if we think sanctification is just about producing more morality, then we neglect the heart. And see, what sanctification, at the heart of sanctification, is God's concern for our heart. Now, don't hear me wrong. You'll definitely see growth in those areas as you become more sanctified. But sanctification is far more than behavior modification. It's a deepening of our trust in God. See, sanctification is indeed the process of becoming more like Jesus, but specifically in his trust in God. And as our trust rests in God, our behaviors and our attitudes, they change. It's an inside-out sort of transformation. And from that trust, we're able to see that God is good, so I don't need to look elsewhere. I don't need to lust after things I don't have. We'll see that God is great, so I don't need to be in control. I don't need to gossip to sort of manipulate. We'll see that God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. I don't have to value others' opinions and get my, my identity from that. We'll see that God is gracious, so that I don't have anything to prove, that he loves me at my worst. See, sanctification is the process of our theology being experienced in everyday life, not just in a moment of, of salvation where it's this grand moment where we feel God's power and movement, but a daily experience of God's grace. See, this is, this is the kind of change that God desires to bring in our lives, and it ended into the lives of the Israelites. And the way that he does this is by leading his people into a trial or a test because this is the way, this is the only way that our faith can grow, can grow. It's just like fitness. The only way you can get stronger is if you test your muscles. And it's in these times of testing that growth happens. It will be challenging and difficult, but in the end, it is worth it. See, this is why, why, why James 1, verses 2 and 3 say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. So it is with this in mind, God is setting out for the perfection of Israel, that they would become more Christ-like. Even though they don't know who Christ is yet, they'd become more godly in their trust and their dependence. And he sets, out, sets them forth on a journey. And before I kind of keep going into this, it's, it's good for us to wrestle with what's going on here in the book of Exodus. There, there's many people that think, oh, the Old Testament, that, that's old. 
We don't need to, we don't need to revisit this text. It's, it's dated. The, the New Testament's here. We can just study that. But actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, Paul tells us that specifically about the Exodus story, that these things happen to Israel as an example for us. See, and they're written down for our instruction. So it is good for us to hear what's going on here and learn from Israel's example. So let's, with that in mind, let's look at verses um, 22 through 23. I lost my page. Verses 22 and 23. Then Moses made Israel set out. Don't be confused here because it says, then Moses made Israel set out. But who is it? Do you remember who's leading Israel? Pillar of cloud a day, fire by night. It's God through Moses is leading Israel out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Just three days, just three days after their mountaintop high, right, where everyone's singing and praising, they've got the tambourine out, things change. Their journey three days into the wilderness leaves them with no water. And they finally come to a body of water. They can't drink it because the water is too bitter. See, this is a genuine concern that the people of Israel had. I like to drink water. It's, it's pretty essential for living, Right? So it's, they're not off their rockers when they start saying, hey, man, we need, we need to find some water. But, but what we see here is not, not just bringing up concern. What we see here is, is a lack of, of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of really understanding of who it is who's actually bringing them out of the wilderness or into the wilderness. And what they start doing is they start grumbling against Moses. Take a look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, what shall we drink? Right? There's, okay, Moses, you brought us here. What should we do? What should we be doing here? It's up to you. But the irony of this whole situation, the bitter water, really what that is exposing here, what it's bringing to our attention is the bitterness of the hearts of the people of Israel. See, the problem isn't that they said something about not having water. See, it would be right to bring such a concern to their leadership. Rather, it was the manner in which they were saying it, right? You get this when you're in in an argument with your spouse, right? Things are heated. One of you's got to leave. It's like, all right, I love you. You know, sort of this, you say it, but you don't really mean it. It's sort of like this undertone of frustration, you see, that's the attitude, same sort of attitude problem that Israel had, and it stems from forgetfulness. Literally three days ago, God made water stand up on itself. Three days before. Now, you think that a God who is capable of doing such, such thing as that would be capable of making rainfall, but they don't go to God. They go to Moses, and they grumble. They complain against him. See, Psalm 106 kind of speaks directly into the situation where where it says that the people of Israel did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love. See, they just, they forgot. Three days ago, they saw the most magnificent thing and they've forgotten. See, what they have 
This attitude problem stems from forgetfulness. It exposed a lack of trust and immaturity in their faith. Faith, And oftentimes, this sort of grumbling and complaining exposes the same thing about us. Just like Israel, we are quick to forget who God is and, and who it is that's leading us. We complain because we don't have enough money or we're not, not treated a certain way. We complain because life circumstances aren't fair. See, our, our frustrations with our circumstances might be accurate, right? Times might be hard. You, your boss might actually be a jerk. But when we start complaining and grumbling about them, we forget that it is God who had led us into that place in the first place. And that it is God who is using that for our good. See, John, John Calvin says this, what we suffer may be bitter in itself, but however bitter it is, it does not need to make us bitter. The problem at Mara was not the water, bitter though it was, but the bitterness in the hearts of God's people. God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make more prominent the bitterness which lurked in their own hearts. See, but bitterness doesn't does not come in the outward circumstances, but in the inward response. We are called not to complain, but to believe in the goodness of God even when circumstances are not in our favor. And while the people of Israel grumbled, Moses shows us an alternative. Moses goes to God in prayer. Take a look at verse 15. He said, and he he cried, Moses, he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a a log, or if you look down in the footnote, it says a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. See, Moses knew how to handle a difficult situation like this. It was nothing that Moses could do that could save or to offer the Israelites better water. See, Moses knew he had to go to God. It was only God who could save them. And so he trusted God. He exercised real dependence in God's providence, And in that, Calvin says, herein shone forth the inestimable mercy of God who changed the nature of the water for the purpose of supplying such wicked and rebellious and grumbling and ungrateful men. Right here, once again, we see the mercy and the grace of God upon undeserving people. Just as Israel did nothing to achieve their salvation from Egypt, they have done nothing to earn this grace of sweet water from God. In fact, they don't deserve it at all. They've been grumbling against God, and now he has shown blessing. See, this time blessing comes through the trust of another person. Moses trusted God even when others didn't. And in times where Israel was grumbling specifically against Moses and the things that he had no control of, he had the faith to go to God and trust. See, just as God gave uh, Moses a tree to throw in the water, God also appointed a tree for Jesus to make the bitter, bitterness of our sins transform into the sweetness of salvation. But this wasn't a tree that Jesus threw into the water and moved along. This was a tree that Jesus would climb up on and die. And he did so with mockers and grumblers scoffing at him, making fun of him. They say this, they, while, they're, while Jesus is hanging there in agony, they say, oh, he, he trusts God, right? If he trusts God, we'll let God deliver him. 
But those, the words of the mockers and the scoffers would be to their shame because Jesus did indeed trust God so much that he was obedient even to the point of death. And through that death, God's people would be saved from their sin and offered new life in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 23-24 says this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, it's through Jesus' death that he takes away the bitterness of our sin, that we do not have to take on that bitterness ourselves any longer. And he takes that that bitterness and he turns it into sweetness, the sweetness of our salvation, so that we can actually do what Psalm 34 instructs us, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And that by his goodness, that Jesus is our provision that brings us home to this land of abundance, a land which Israel actually gets a foretaste of in verse 27, when they go from Mara to the bountiful place of Elium in verse 27, where there's springs of water, palm trees. This is a lush land. And it is as we trust and see God's goodness that we are compelled to move toward him in faith-motivated obedience in response to our salvation. See, this is what God is calling Israel to do here, to respond to their salvation in faith-motivated obedience. Take a look at verse 25 and 26 as we come to a close here. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. There is that language again. He is the healer of our bitterness. See, there's blessing in obedience. But God isn't out there for our white-knuckled obedience. God wants obedience that is motivated by faith, that's motivated by a deep trust in him based upon our salvation. See, notice the order here. We don't, we don't obey so that we will be saved. That, that honestly sounds terrible. Because if my salvation were dependent upon my obedience, I would never be confident in my salvation. One moment, I would feel like a Jesus all-star. It's like, I'm doing it by the book. I've got this down. I'm obeying God, doing things his way. You know, and, and in doing that, that doesn't necessarily help me in the humility department. Because I, I get this sort of swagger. Oh, I'm, I'm doing it right. But then the next moment when I, I mess up, when I disobey, when I rebel against God, I feel like a joke because here I am, I, I didn't obey God. How will I know? If it's, if it's based upon me, I'm so inconsistent. That's a scary idea. See, the good news is that our salvation is not dependent upon us, but upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's dependent upon God's grace. And when we see that God loved us at our worst so much that he sent Christ to die for us, that changes us that changes the way that we view obedience. It's not a white-knuckled thing. It's not a do this so I feel loved. It's a response of worship. Our obedience says to God, I've seen your power, and I'm going to trust you even when it's hard. 
See, faith-motivated obedience is a sign that we are actually believing that God is good. It isn't just a lip service. It isn't just uh, rattling off sort of uh, our confession of faith. It shows that we have experienced our theology, and it leads to doxology. See, but this doxology isn't just exclusively making music, though that's what it is. We, we sing, we're making doxology to the Lord. This is a doxology that's expressed through the entirety of our lives, as Romans 12, 12 instructs, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, this is what God is after. People who deeply trust him and worship him with all that we do, whether it be on Sunday morning or Monday afternoon. See, this even surfaces in the Great Commission where Jesus commissions his disciples to go make disciples. And the way you make disciples is through proclaiming the good news of salvation through Christ Jesus. But he also says, and as you're making disciples, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. See, this is a faith-motivated response. It's not obey, then be saved. It's experience salvation, respond in faith-motivated obedience. And in doing so, there's blessing as we abide in God. 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments and abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. Friends, I pray that we would be people who have experienced our theology. I pray that we would have a profound encounter with God's salvation, not just in a sort of one grand moment, but a day-to-day in our sanctification, which would lead to a robust doxology both in song and in our lives. And know that God desires to refine us through trials, tribulations, But in doing so, he's working for our good, creating in us a deep trust and delight in him as he makes us more fit for our heavenly home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good news of salvation and how you have worked mightily through Christ Jesus. Raising up the Red Sea was nothing compared to raising your son from the dead. And so we praise you and we thank you for that free gift that you have given us of new life in him as we trust. Would you supply the faith that we need? Would you allow us to be still and trust in you and what you have done? And Father, as you take us from perhaps we're at a mountaintop moment in our life or maybe we're in the valley wherever you are, we are, would you sustain us as we move forward knowing that your desire is to make us more like Christ, not just in morality, but in our dependence and trust in you, that our faith would increase so that we would reach our heavenly home, be fit for it, and delight in you now and forevermore. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Alec, would you join me to serve communion?